I've never said this on a microphone before. I've certainly said it to you because we are very close friends, but I was fired and that's okay. I actually feel very empowered when I say that. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. I am so excited about today's guest because not only is she a world-class journalist, she's also one of my dearest friends and someone who I've looked up to and admired for some time now. She started out as a production assistant learning all the ropes before quickly moving up to become a producer. And it wasn't long before she started contributing on air as well. Her first big national gig was with CNN and HLN as an anchor and a tech correspondent. And since then, she's worked at CBS, that's where she and I cross paths, NBC, and now she's back to CNN and HLN anchoring her own show on the story with Erica Hill. You can see it on HLN. Erica. Welcome to No Limits. Rebecca Jarvis, I'm really excited to be here. I've been thinking about this conversation all day and smiling ear to ear. Um, For those of you who are just tuning in, Erica and I go way back. We do. Back to CBS. We're going to get into that in a minute, but I want to go even farther back to your childhood growing up in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. Did you want to be a journalist as a kid? Was that the dream? No, I didn't. In fact, I don't think I can point to one job where I said, That's what I want to do growing up. There was a time in my life that I remember vividly where my plan was to be in the circus, not clear what my role was going to be. And I was also going to work at the post office because at the time, my Aunt Sarah had two jobs. She was a waitress and she was also working as a postal carrier. And I thought the car that she got to drive was really cool. So when you went to college, were you already decided when you went to Boston University that you were going to do journalism? I wasn't. One of the best things that I did in my life was my junior year of high school. My parents, somehow I got them to agree that I should go be an exchange student for a year in a foreign country and live with a family that they had never met well before the days of the internet and texting and email and all of those great things. And so I was an exchange student my junior year of high school, and I lived with a family in a small village of 700 people, and I went to a regional high school in France. And that kind of helped fuel my love of travel and different cultures and meeting people and just learning. I mean, I really have this insatiable appetite for knowledge, which is good because as journalists, we read a lot. Curiosity. Curiosity. And when I went to college, I thought, well, I want to major in international relations, but I didn't know what to do with that. And I got to Boston University. They have a phenomenal college of communication. And at one point, I realized I had transferred into comm, as they call it, and I thought I would do public relations, and I hated it. But What I, did you hate about it? I just – I am a terrible salesperson. And that is a quality I really admire in people. I don't even like fundraising for causes that I believe deeply in. I just – I think I'm just uncomfortable asking for money. And so to me, that sort of plays into the sales thing. And public relations, I was selling something, and I didn't feel that I was all that good at it. But I had a, a professor who said – you're a really strong writer. Have you thought about journalism? And I was like, oh, you know, I did take a journalism class back in high school. And I transferred into journalism. And all of a sudden, I realized these friends of mine were in the broadcast program. And they would spend their days on the third floor of the College of Communication, which was one of the saddest buildings on campus at the time, in the edit bays. 
And this was tape-to-tape editing. And that's where I realized I loved this process because not only was it satisfying my curiosity because I was learning and I was asking questions, but I loved the creative process of marrying words and pictures. And that's what hooked me. You say that you hated sales, and yet you did manage to sell your parents as a, what, 15-year-old to send you to France? I did. In fact, I started working on them in seventh grade. (laughs) How did you sell them? Um, I was a cheerleader in middle school, and we had a routine, as many people did in the 80s, to Footloose. And one one of the former cheerleaders from the middle school came down from the high school to teach us the routine just before she was leaving for a year in Australia. And I came home and I said to my parents, I'm going to be an exchange student. And they said, that's great. Uh, I made a lot of proclamations. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to go to France. And they said, OK, good luck. And that was sort of it. But I kept on it. And we had a very active AFS chapter in my town. And I had to raise money. I mean, this was $5,000 in 1992. My parents didn't have $5,000. I didn't. I started working. I started babysitting. Um, was and- babysitting your first job? it probably was. I worked in a greenhouse and I hated it. And then I moved on to restaurants. And now you garden. Yeah, right. I garden. (laughs) I kill plants. I've been known to kill a cactus. (laughs) Okay. So you're in school. You're studying journalism. Mm -hmm. You found your place. How long between school and that first journalism job, internship, whatever it was? It was actually fairly quick. Uh, My first internship was at CBS News. It was a double internship. They were launching what was called CBS New Media. And my father, who was a salesman, um, he was a sales manager at a car dealership. He sold a car to Phil Scheffler, who was with 60 Minutes at the time. And my very proud father told Mr. Scheffler, my daughter is majoring in broadcast journalism. She's very smart. (laughs) Phil Scheffler did not say, I'm giving your daughter an internship, but he gave me the the contact that I needed because I, I didn't really know where to turn and called up and went through the whole process like everybody else. And so I, I, I partly interned with new media where they were figuring out at that point their new media strategy. And then the other part was with the CBS Evening News. And on my last day, the guys in graphics made me a um, – they printed out a picture for me and it was a picture of the set – and then there was a Chiron at the bottom. Chiron is the lower third where we put the information on the television screen. And it said, producer Erica Hill. And that's what I wanted to be. And I brought that home and I was so proud. And then years later, I get kind of emotional, years later to sit on that set. Wow. Filling in for Katie Couric, anchoring the CBS Evening News. It was an incredible moment to come full circle, especially because I didn't want to be an anchor. I wanted to be a producer. Um, so that was that's a long story. It's a great story. Rebecca knows Did, my answers aren't short. I, <laughs> She's known me long enough. I'm a terrible soundbite. I know they're great. I just was curious. Did Phil buy a car that day? I believe Phil did buy a car. He did. One of the first jobs was at PC. PC Week. So my, PC my, Week. my first internship was the summer before my senior year, and that was with CBS News. And then I went abroad the following semester, my first semester of my senior year, for an internship program in Paris. And I, I stayed sort of in new media at that point. And then I came back, and my advisor said, there's this great internship, and it's paid. I made $10 an hour, and I went to work for PC Week for a man named Steve Kofsky, and he was launching PC Week Radio, and he was doing – 
you know, sort of the, <laughs> I guess, the forebearer to podcasts. And we did all of these different webcasts. And then we started doing short technology headlines. And Steve, my boss, would anchor them. And myself and another intern would write the headlines. We would create all the graphics. We would shoot them. We would edit them. And then we would upload them. And that was my job. And that led to my first job at, at ZDTV, which was a tech-based, 24-hour tech network um, that was owned by the same parent company as PC Week. And I went there and I started out in the very glamorous job of digitizing video. What was going through your head at the time? Did you feel like you were going to move up in the world? I wasn't, to be quite honest, I wasn't sure exactly what I wanted to do. The job was in San Francisco, which was really all I needed. I wanted to get to the West Coast. And it was this very exciting time to be in San Francisco. This was 1998. And this was, we were almost at the height of the dot-com boom. And I was working at a startup. And it wasn't one of the startups that had crazy launch parties where they gave away a Porsche because there was one of those. Who was that? You know, I don't remember. They're not around anymore. <laughs> I remember going to the launch of Pets.com. Right, I was thinking Pets.com. I still have the sock puppet in my office. But because we were the only technology network, we got invited to all of these things. And so it was just exciting. And I realized there was a lot of opportunity. And at that moment, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do but I loved being a part of this creative process and being at a place where everyone else was kind of figuring it out, too, and where that was okay. And that moment in time, just to be in San Francisco and to have that bird's eye view of everything and to see the movers and shakers in that world had yeah. to be pretty incredible. It was, although, you know, it was somewhat unrealistic, too. Boston University is a great school. There's a lot of money at BU. And it was a world that I didn't come from. And I'm so happy I was exposed to it and exposed to it at 18 because that's a great life lesson. But you realize being in San Francisco, we were really in this bubble. And I would recognize it more every time I went home. And so that's when you started to realize there's no way this can last. This mm -hmm. is not a sustainable lifestyle. What was the leap between that job and then finally getting on air? The beauty of working at this startup was that I was in a newsroom where, A, it was before the time where everything you did lived forever online so I could make mistakes. And so I think that was really important. Um, but it was a newsroom that was staffed by, I, I refer to them in a very loving way as these salty old news guys. So our news director and our associate news director had been around the block so many times. They were the heart and soul of local news in San Francisco, and everybody knew them, and they wanted to change. And they brought with them a couple different reporters who were also these seasoned reporters and producers and editors and cameramen, but they were ready for something different. And then they had this crop of young wannabe journalists, and they really took us under their wing and taught us the importance of good writing and being responsible for everything you do. And so I was allowed to learn in an environment where we could try anything. We could figure out what we were good at, what we enjoyed. And I would come in at 4 a.m., and I would write up all the copy. And then the engineer would come in, and then eventually my anchor would come in, who was my old boss from my internship at PC Week, and he would read it. And one day, um, one of the women who would anchor the morning news cut-ins, those you know quick updates that you see, was off on a story. And they said, you know, you're here anyway. You're already writing stuff. Could you just put some makeup on and go sit in front of that camera? Because Jen's going to be out for a couple days. And I said, sure. What went through your head when they said that? I was trying to remember because I knew you might ask me that. I don't know. I'm really not. I, I'm not sure. Um, but then I started going out on stories, and I realized I just enjoyed it, and it felt 
natural to me. It it didn't feel it people get really nervous sometimes and I think that's understandable. A camera is sort of jarring, but it was also a very safe environment not only because of the people around me, but not a lot of people watched. And it was a long time. It was really a long time, even after I left CNN, that all of a sudden I realized, oh, my gosh, there are like millions of people who watch CBS News or The Today Show. And it took a while for that to sink in because I started out somewhere that was so safe and and insulated in many ways because we were available on satellite. And my grandparents got it in New Hampshire. And other than that, I didn't know a lot of people who could watch it. And it sounds like your boss or the group of people who were around you were also very – they were helping you. Like they, they wanted you to succeed. They did. Every single person there wanted wanted everyone else to succeed. And what was great about us being able to try all of these different jobs in the newsroom was it gave you a real appreciation for what those jobs entail and the challenges that people face in their job. So instead of just complaining that the graphics were late, you knew why. Because you knew what the process was. Um, and so I think that was really important, too, because it gives you – I always say, I think broadcast journalism, I think television, this is really the ultimate team sport. Because people see you, Rebecca, and they see me on camera. But the team of people behind the scenes who make that happen is enormous. And if you don't know that and if you don't appreciate it and respect it and foster that, that sense of community and that team, then you might fail. And if you don't, you might actually have people rooting for you, too, because if if, if you're not a team player, it's going to come back to bite you. September 11th, mm-hmm. you were on the air live. We were with my dear friend, Michaela Pereira, and we now work together um, at HLN. But we uh, we co-anchored a show in the morning called Tech Live. And it was right before we were going on the air on the West Coast because we went live at six. And we were trying to figure out what was happening as the feeds were coming in. Um, and we didn't know. And it was a lot of, as it was for most people, it was a lot of conflicting information throughout the day and things kept changing. And all I wanted to do was to make sure the people I knew were okay. And all throughout the day, I just wanted to work because I thought I can't do anything, but I can, even if one person is watching this tiny little startup where we work, if one person is watching and they're getting information, then I'm doing my job and at least I may be doing something useful. And I stayed up all night and I remember watching Aaron Brown all night long and just silently, you know, tears just silently falling as you're trying to wrap your head around what's happening. How did going through that as a journalist change or develop your sense of responsibility as a journalist? I think that's when it hit me, that, that we, we do have a responsibility, and it's a great responsibility that people give us, and they trust us. There was never a time that I played hard and loose with the facts. Um, accuracy has always been number one for me. But especially on a day like that, when you realize how important it was to be calm and to be a place where people could get their information and at the same time be human. And and I think that's always who I've been. Anytime in my career where I've been asked to change things, I've realized either in that moment or later on, in many ways it was asking me to not be myself. And that's a tough thing to do. I think you can be an objective journalist. I think you can put information out there and do it in an unbiased way. But it's okay to show that you're human. And if that means you're choking up a little bit, that's okay. That's life and that's real. And and I think that authenticity – I hope that authenticity is appreciated. And that's – I definitely – I saw more of that I think in those few days of that week um, and did understand 
even though we were this tiny, you know, it, it wasn't ABC and it wasn't CNN, but there were some people who were watching and we got emails about it. And it, and it reaffirmed my belief um, in the importance of journalism and sharing information and, and having a place for people to turn to that they knew they could trust. Going from that first opportunity where you're on the air to CNN. Yeah. That, how did you make that move? Um, did someone come to you and yes. say, okay. Yeah. So I got a call. Um, there was a, a man I knew in San Francisco who was a local talent agent. I didn't work with him. I didn't have an agent. But Did you negotiate your deals in the beginning? I mean, were they even I had an deals? attorney. You had an attorney. I okay. did have an attorney do that one deal for me, um, who I adore and who is still a dear, dear friend to this day who lives in San Francisco. I got a call, um, and a number of us did. So Henry had gone to work at CNN. He was working in talent development. And he called a few of us in San Francisco and said, oh, you know, send us your tape. I've told them about you, CNN and Headline News. They're looking at people, and you should send it. And I was thinking, oh, okay, whatever. I'll get to it. And he called, kept calling me and said, Erica, I'm telling you, this is the moment you want to send it to me. So get it together. Otherwise, you're going to miss the opportunity. And I sent him the tape. And a couple weeks later, they brought me out. And they flew me out to Atlanta for an interview. And I, sort of a screen test, for lack of a better term, and just a whirlwind of meetings. And then I went home, and two weeks later, they offered me a job. Were you blown away? Or was it in the back of your mind, like, this is my moment? Completely blown away, because at the time, ZDTV had become tech TV, and they were in a rough spot. And they weren't renewing anybody's contracts. So many of us were working without contracts. And we were all looking for jobs, because we knew our days were numbered, because we knew there were big changes coming. And at the time, my then boyfriend, now husband, was applying to law schools. And so he was – we were talking about different cities where we would like to live, where there were law schools for him and where I thought I could get a job in local news. And Atlanta was not one of those cities. And all of a sudden, this offer threw everything up in the air. It was an incredible career move for me, but it also meant a lot of changes for him, uh, the first of many. Uh, but I'm lucky he's you know incredibly supportive. And, and it goes back and forth. It definitely has over the years. But that threw everything up in the air. I was not expecting it at all. So what happened? I mean, what was the I moved conversation? moved to Atlanta. You moved to Atlanta. <laughs> what was the conversation like um, with, with your husband at the time? We were looking at staying in California, applying to law schools. We loved California, applying to law schools um, in San Francisco and L.A. and also in Boston and D.C. or in Brooklyn, but not Atlanta. And so I, this is a great job, and I think I need to take it. And I thought that me saying that also conveyed the message, oh, you should come with me. But I wasn't that clear about it. And he called me out. And he said, I don't know if you want me to come or not. And I said, of course. I mean, I don't want this to go away. We've got a good thing here. And he picked up and he moved. And we moved to Atlanta. Good for him. I'm so glad he did. That was a good move. I think it was, too. I'm glad he did. (laughs) Okay. So you're in Atlanta. You're working for CNN. You are on the air with Anderson Cooper. Yes. When you were in that role, my mom used to talk about Erica Hill before I ever knew you because she loved you in that role. Thank you. And loves you in this role as well at HLN. Um, But what was it it like developing that chemistry initially with him? It came very naturally, and it was in no way planned to be funny. 
Um, so, so I was in Atlanta at the time and I was working for what was then headline news and CNN and they launched uh, headline news, launched headline prime and it was a big deal. And they launched three shows and mine was prime news with myself and Mike Galanos. And because our show was on at 9 PM Eastern, all of a sudden I was there much later in the day. And my boss at the time said, since you're here, I want to have you do primetime news cut-ins, just little updates on my primetime shows. And at the time that was Anderson Cooper, Paula Zahn and Aaron. Brown. And I am, um, you know, sometimes I'm funny, Rebecca, you may have noticed <laughs> I think you're a pretty funny every now person. and then. And so we started to have a little bit more fun. And I realized I could joke around with him a little bit, never in a way that was disrespectful. I think, I think one of the most important lessons that you should learn early on as, as, as a journalist and, and frankly, as a colleague is, you know, you never want to put your colleague in a, in a difficult situation. So that means I always like to check with a reporter as an anchor before I ask them a question because I don't want to make them look bad. That's because nice sometimes you, they may not have the answer. Not all anchors do that. No, and I've been in that position as a reporter, <laughs> so I get it. And we can all dance around it. But sometimes you think, what the heck was that? Um, and I also don't ever want it to come off as mean-spirited because it's not. I'm not a mean-spirited person. Um, I adore Anderson Cooper. I respect him immensely as a journalist. Um, but, you know, I like him a lot as a person. But I didn't know him personally all that well. He's a very private guy. And so it just developed naturally on its own. How did you make the decision to go from CNN to CBS? A lot of it had to do um, with my personal life. So I was working at both jobs for about a year and a half. Monday through Friday, I was with Anderson in New York. Uh, We had moved to New York. And Saturday mornings, I was co-anchoring the early show. What was on the early show? You were working eight days a week, basically. You know, I'm just a beetle. Um, (laughs) and, And my contracts were up at the same time. And I loved CNN. I mean, I loved working there. I loved the people. I loved Anderson. I loved working on his show. But I was pregnant with my second child. I was working nights, so I hardly saw my younger son because he was in preschool a couple days a week, and it happened to be a full-day preschool. And I wanted to see my family. Uh, And I also wanted some more opportunities. And things were going so well with Anderson and myself that they didn't want to move me out of that role. And Anderson was a great champion for me. Whenever he was off, he would say, Erica should fill in. And I had a lot of supporters on that team who loved sending me out in the field to do stories. But the bottom line was I was supposed to be there with Anderson because it worked. And so it was mostly personal because I wanted to see my family in a morning show, much better hours when you have two little kids, and also because I wanted more opportunity. So CBS, Mm -hmm. you're at CBS, you're anchoring the weekend, you're also anchoring the weekday show. I come into CBS around that time that you're moving over to the weekday show Mm -hmm. and you're on, you went on maternity leave. That's when, so I came in like right before before. you went on maternity leave. Um, And then I couldn't wait to get back because you were there. Yeah. And then you got back. You're anchoring the weekday show. There's a lot of changes going on inside of CBS at that time. There were a lot of changes, and that was a time at CBS News where where there were multiple changes. So when I first came over, I was the I was the newsreader, the news anchor on the weekday show, and still anchoring Saturdays. And then I went off and had a baby, and came back a few weeks later. And Maggie Rodriguez, a few weeks. Well, I was I think it was eight, ten weeks. I would have happily taken more. The full thing. I would have liked to. I couldn't. 
This was a, you know, this is a tough job. A, you know, at the time, my husband had been a stay-at-home dad for a couple of years, and we had planned for maternity leave. But I don't think that the the leave was nearly as generous as it is now. This was seven years ago at a lot of companies, and I couldn't really afford to take off too much time unpaid. We had just moved, which is not inexpensive in New York City, and we were renting, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's it's a lot, and there was a lot going on. Um, in a and one of those one of those things going on was that the main co-anchor was also about to have a baby. And so it was made fairly clear to me that it would be great if I could get back because I needed to fill in for her to go have her baby. Um, and, and, you know, which was fine. And then uh, and then we found out they were revamping the early show. And now they're moving me into the main co-anchor slot. And then probably six or eight weeks after that happened, we got new management. And we realized pretty quickly that the show we were doing was likely not going to stay. And then there was another change. And it became CBS This Morning. And it was Charlie Rose and Gail King and myself. Gail King, too, I have to say, I grew up actually watching Gail King. She was the local news anchor on the CBS affiliate in Connecticut. And we watched her. Gail is one of the smartest, most hardworking people I have ever had the pleasure of calling a colleague. And she is also pure class. She treats everyone so well. She knows everybody's name. And to this day, anytime I make a move, she sends me flowers. She wishes me good luck. She'll drop a line now and then because she's watching. She is as authentic as they come. And I just, I adore her. She's a wonderful person. When you're in studio with Gail, she is appreciative of every single person, every single day. Yes. She makes note and she calls people out for good things, definitely talks about how great they're doing and recognizes them. Yeah. I think she's a great, I think she is a fantastic role model. And what was that like going through all of those changes? And especially because here you are in this anchor seat and the changes are all happening behind the scenes, but you're kind of the face of everything. But a lot of people have no clue what's going on behind the scenes. I think it, I think it was difficult for everyone uh, because there was a lot of uncertainty because we didn't know what our jobs would be. We weren't sure who would have a job and who wouldn't. Um, I was told fairly early on that I didn't need to worry that I would have a job. Part of that time was really exciting, too, because we could do pretty much any story. Uh, You know, I spent a week in Kenya at a refugee camp. That's a tough thing to get on the air because there's a lot happening at home that takes precedence on the evening news. And I get that. Uh, But it was great to be able to do some of those stories. But it it was a lot of change. And it was tough because we weren't sure where we were going to go or ultimately where we would end up. And, And for me, too... There was a lot riding on on a personal level. I had these two little boys. Um, I had lost my dad not long after my younger son was born. And so I think I was dealing with a lot more personally than I would allow myself to um, to recognize. So it was a challenging time. When you ended up leaving CBS, eventually going to NBC, um, what was what was going through your head at the time? And how were you looking at your career in that moment? Um So when I left CBS, um, it was hard. It was really hard. Um, We were six months into CBS this morning. And I remember in the first, I want to say it might have been in the first week, I emailed our executive producer. I would get up in the morning at 2.45 and I would look at my BlackBerry at the time and I would look at what the show was shaping up to be. And I emailed him a few days in and I said, you know what I love about this email every morning? It's not only a show that I want to do, but it's a show that I would watch. It felt smart and informative and I liked it. Um, I really liked being a part of it. Uh, But it's tough. You know, you're starting off 
off a show with three people who have never worked together and we're all trying to figure out our dynamic. We have totally changed the way things are done at CBS News and it was exciting, but it was tough. But just before I went on vacation that July, uh, one of my bosses and I met and he said, I just want to let you know, I think you're doing a great job and I think things are really starting to gel. And here's where I think you've really made improvements. Here's what else I think you could work on, but I think we're in a good place. And I went off on vacation feeling great. And Nora O'Donnell was coming to fill in for a week. And, you know, I left her some extra stuff in the fridge and said, you know, take whatever's in my office. Um, And and I liked Nora a lot. You know, she'd been working at CBS for a little while by that point. So I'd come to know her and respect her a lot as a journalist. And I came back the following week after vacation. And then I got called into my boss's offices and, uh, and they said, we've decided to make some changes. What went through your head when you got that message? I had this odd premonition, honestly, walking into that office. And I thought, there's just something about this. It was it was supposed to be a meeting for, for something else that was happening that weekend. And I just felt, I don't think this is what's going to happen. And I actually joked to my assistant at the time, who's a dear friend of mine. I said, he said, oh, I'll see you. I'll see you right after or something. I forget what. And I said, oh, unless I get fired. And he said, don't joke like that. I said, oh, you know, I'm just sort of kidding. And I don't even know why I said that at the time. But I was sort of dumbfounded. And I and they said, we've decided to make some changes. And we are replacing you with Nora. And I said, okay, can I ask what I did? And they said, it wasn't you. It wasn't anything you did or you didn't do, but this just feels like a better fit. And that happens in this business. It's about chemistry, and it's also about how the people in the front office feel about the people who are sitting there every day in front of the camera. And I knew that, but it's hard to hear. It's really hard to hear. And so I I tried to keep it together. And I was walking back to my office with my head down because I didn't want to cry. And I was texting my husband and I texted him. I said, I just got fired. And he, he texted me. I said, what are you talking about? And then I called my agent and I said, I just got fired. And they had said to me, we haven't spoken to your agents yet. We wanted to tell you first, which I actually really respected. You know, they, I think they handled it very well and in a very humane way. Um, they said, but we do, you know, we do need to put out a press release. And I said, could you just give me like an hour? to get out of the building. That was nice of you. And they Generous. Did, right. And they did. And it's funny. My husband will say to me, you didn't get fired. And 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 for years, he's, he's sort of gotten upset with me when I say that. But I have come to really, I've come to find that that, I actually feel very empowered when I say that. Because yes, I was replaced. Yes, I, there probably could have been a role for me at CBS News, but I didn't really see how I could continue there. And, and again, I think you know, to their credit, I think they handled it all very well and, and with grace. And, and I like to think I did the same. But there is part of it that and I've, I've never said this on a microphone before. I've certainly said it to you because we are very close friends, but I was fired. And that's okay. One of my friends back in the day who was one of those reporters who wanted to change and came to work at the startup in San Francisco, Janet Yee, she said to me, you have not made it in this business until you've been fired. And I thought about those words for probably the next 24, 48 hours. And I kept reminding myself, you know what? Janet Yee made it and she got fired probably twice (laughs) and not because she wasn't good. And as time went on, I also realized I am good at my job. And that's a tough thing to admit. And I think it's especially tough for women because we don't give ourselves credit. But I am smart enough and I absolutely deserved a seat at that table and it didn't work out. And that's okay because even things that seem really tough at the time, I'm pretty glass half full. It's a great lesson for me. 
I needed time with my family. Like I said, I, I don't think I'd really dealt with losing my dad who'd been sick for a long time at the same time that I had just had another baby and I was going through all these changes at work. And I got three months with my husband and my children. And that is priceless and it can never be it can never be replaced. And I also learned a lot of lessons. I learned what was important to me. I learned how to stand up for myself. I looked back and thought, you know, what could I have done differently? How could I have handled situations differently? How could I have handled myself in the workplace differently? And I applied all of those lessons when I went to my next job at NBC News. And I tried to make myself not only a better journalist, but a better colleague and a better person. I'm so proud of you, Erica. I just have to say that right here Thank in the you. interview because I, oh, I, I'm so proud of you. And I saw you through this experience. And I was proud of you then. I'm proud of you now. You're on the other side of it. You have your own show. You've come full circle mm -hmm. back to CNN. And now you're at HLN with your own show. What along the way do you think has been the toughest lesson? That's such a great question. Um, it may sound sort of silly. I think the toughest lesson is that we're all expendable. And especially in this business. And and again, I go back to it doesn't mean that you're not good at your job. I mean, that was one of the things, you know, then when I got to NBC, I was like, you know, I am I am I am a damn good reporter and I am a good writer and I love to write and I know what I'm doing and I have earned my stripes. And yet this is a tough business and we are all expensive because there's always and I'm sure this applies to other businesses as well. Ours is just unfortunately more public. It's kind of a zero sum game, too. There's one position. Yeah. To fill. Totally. Each and every time. And sometimes it's not even you, right? It doesn't mean that you're not Apples a good and reporter. Oranges. And it doesn't mean that you're not great on air. And it doesn't mean that you may not connect with an audience. But there may be someone that your bosses like better. And that's life. And so that's the toughest lesson. But it's also been one of the best lessons. What do you say then, knowing all of this, what do you say to the young person who's looking at, at all of this, bright-eyed, excited mm -hmm. about this? Should they pursue it? I think if you love it, absolutely. But be prepared to work hard. This is not an easy job. And I always think that surprises people because especially where, where, where you and I are now, Rebecca, right? I mean, we are very fortunate. We have worked our tails off to get here. But we are really in this upper echelon when it comes to broadcast journalism. And these are tough jobs to get. And to your point, there aren't that many of them to go around. And from the outside, it's hair and makeup and it's these big sets and, you know, sort of fancy dresses that you wear on set in the morning. But the reality is that is such a small part of what we do. We work long hours. We work all hours. And you have to love it. And you have to be willing to give up a lot of things, give up time in your personal life, give up sleep, uh, you give up holidays, so love it and be curious. And if you want to pursue it, don't let anybody tell you you can't. Great advice, Erica, as usual. <laughs> if only we had two glasses of wine right now. <laughs> then the advice would really be impressive. <laughs> um, so I'm sure you got some terrible advice along the way. What was the worst advice you got? I have been so stressed out about this question. <laughs> so full disclosure, I've become addicted to the Rebecca No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis podcast. And I've been telling everybody to listen because I love them. And I have learned so much. Oh, and I knew you were going to ask me this question. And I keep going back to this. I had a boss who told me once that I should dye my hair blonde. I what? just had my hair colored. And he said, you know, it's a little dark. And I said, I'm a brunette. And he said, well, you should go blonde. And I said, well, that wouldn't match my eyebrows. <laughs> 
And to me... That's the perfect response, by the way. (laughs) It's the factual response. It is the factual (laughs) response. But to me, what that sums up is... Is, is broader advice that I've been given, whether directly or subtly, over the years. And a lot of times it has to do with not being authentic to who you are. And, you know, if you're anchoring the CBS Evening News, you should be one person. If you're anchoring the Today Show, you should be a different person. And while there are different sensibilities in those roles, because your audiences at, at those times of day are different and they're expecting information perhaps delivered in a different way, the person should always be the same. And any time I have tried to change myself to fit what I thought my boss has wanted, it's backfired because I'm not being me and I'm not engaging with my audience because I'm thinking too hard about trying to be something I'm not. The more I talk to people across all industries, the more that is a thread to everybody who is truly successful and happy Mm -hmm. with their success, realizing that The more people tell you to do this, do that, do it this way, the farther away from who you really are that you get, the less happy and less successful you are. Right. And isn't that why they hired you in the first place? I would would start to realize, too, look, you hired me knowing what you were getting. Yes, you adapt because each network is a little bit different and each job is a little bit different. But at the end of the day, who I am shouldn't come as a surprise to you because I've always been here. This is such a public job now versus what it was when we both got started. Yeah. Even even 10 years ago, this was nowhere near as public of a job. Now you have social media. How do you how do you separate those things in your life and hold the things like your family that you hold most dear and keep them safe? I think it's a delicate balance. I know people who don't ever talk about their kids or never put up any pictures of their kids, and I respect that. And I know people who... Uh, who are in our our industry who document every moment of their lives. I find I fall somewhere in between leaning toward the less information. Part of that's because my kids didn't choose this. So I don't feel that I want to put them out all the time. But listen, they love coming to work and they like being on TV a little bit. So <laughs> I don't feel totally uncomfortable posting a cute picture of my kids. And by the way, they're adorable. They are really, um, really, really adorable. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I do a certain amount and, and partially because – I like those personal moments with people, too. I mean, you know, I think it keeps us real. Um, and these are the kind of things that I probably would have shared on any number of the shows that I've worked on. I am probably not as good with my social media from a professional standpoint as I need to be. And, and part of that is because it's draining. I mean, when you're out in the field on, this, on a story and you're shooting a story and it's happening in real time and you're trying to write your script and interview people and get into edit and at the same time you're reminded that you're supposed to be tweeting every detail, there's a moment where you go, stop. I'm trying to do my job and I know that it comes with the job, but sometimes it's too much. And so I, I kind of go back and forth. There's also the importance of actually living in the moment. I mean, yes. the, the more you are thinking about that, whether it's professionally or personally, the more you're taking yourself out of whatever you're really doing. I find that um, – and, and this happened a few years ago, probably probably eight years ago. My husband and I um, took my younger son to Europe. Um, so we went to see my best friend from college who lives in London. My sister lives in Paris. We went to visit her and we went to visit my family who I lived with 25 years ago as an exchange student. And Facebook was fairly new at that point, at least to old people like us. And I realized I had a problem <laughs> at that point when I was thinking of how would I how would I put this moment into a Facebook update? And I mm. thought – I am the people that 
I sort of chastised in the 80s and the 90s who would be at an amusement park or Disney with their kids and they spent all the time videotaping the moment and were never part of it. And I thought that's exactly what I'm doing and I need to stop. So how do you pull yourself out of that? I just don't do it anymore. I, a lot of times I'll think and I'll look and I'll think, oh, that's a great picture. And I could post it. And then I think, but I just kind of want to enjoy it right now. And I take a mental picture. Respect. Thanks. Erica, this was so much fun. Um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you asking me to be here. I, I respect so much the women who have sat down with you for this podcast. And I thought to myself, I don't know that I fit the bill of being at the top of, of my game. And then I thought, could you give yourself some damn credit? And, yeah, girl. And turning 40 has allowed me to do that. I mean, you talk about two people who are successful and accepting who they are. I also think a lot of that wisdom has come with age. And when I turned 40 last year, all of a sudden, I felt stronger and more comfortable in who I am and more comfortable saying, yes, I've earned it. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell myself that I've earned it. What would you say to your 20-year-old self? Travel more. Okay. Let's get some tickets. Let's get a plane. Done. Done. (laughs) Erica Hill, thank you so much. Thank you, Rebecca Jarvis. Love you. Love you. And now here's this week's No Limits Entrepreneur, or, well, in this case, I should say Entrepreneurs. Sarah Shapiro, Stephanie Choi, and Megan Druckmann were all buyers at Bloomingdale's on a team together before parting ways to start their own companies. Sarah co-founded Bezels and Bites, a tech fashion accessories company. Stephanie launched the startup Sawyer, which helps families find the best classes and activities for kids. And Megan opened up her own boutique called Lola. These three entrepreneurs took the tools they learned together to pave their own paths, and they continue to rely on each other for advice and support. And by the way, They have Sarah to thank for this because she sent in the nomination. And if you want to be featured here, remember, you got to send me your nominations at nolimitswithrjpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. If you like what you heard, please make sure to leave us a review. It really does help get the word out. And don't forget, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat at Rebecca Jarvis. Special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Michelle Bancardo, Andrew Kelb, Steve Jones, Annie Osakwe, and Elizabeth Hecht. And coming up on the next episode of No Limits. And I said, well, last I checked, I'm the only one of your anchors that has a, a, an MBA. Um, so I'm, I would argue that I'm uniquely equipped to do that show. And they said, okay, but how can you do two shows? And I said, because I'm a woman and you know that I will work <laughs> twice as hard. <laughs> Willow Bay, Dean of USC's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Until then, take care. Be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.